And there is a sense in which the heart of the letter ended with the final verse of chapter 15. Paul said to the Roman Christians, May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. And that sounds like an ending. And after a letter that spoke about having peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and then a letter that was about pursuing peace between Jews and Gentiles in this church, it's a fitting ending. May the God of peace be with you all. Uh, The letter to the Romans could be summarized as as a letter about peace. And if you're going to have peace, whether it's peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, whether it's peace with one another, it must come from God himself, the God of peace. Our God is a God of peace, a God with whom there is no conflict within himself. We sometimes have conflict within ourselves. God has never had a moment of conflict within himself. Even as God dwells as Trinity, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, they live together in perfect contentment, perfect harmony forever and ever, perfect peace. You may have heard it said that if you get three Baptists together, you'll get at least four opinions. That's not how it is with God. Three persons, one God, perfect peace. Father, Son, and Spirit are one. They are the never-ending fountain of peace for those who know them, to those who are united to them by faith. And so Paul's prayer for the Roman church is that the God of peace would grant them the very peace he's been talking about throughout this letter. And this should be our prayer for this church. And this should be our prayer for every church and all God's people around the world. And we should never, ever take peace for granted. But we should thank God for it, and we should pray for Him to preserve it among us. And so Paul ends chapter 15 with the word, Amen. May it be. Let it be so. Let it be true. It's a word used over and over again in the New Testament. We often use it at the end of a prayer, and it seems like a fitting ending for this letter. And yet there's another chapter. Because Paul isn't quite done. The the heart of the letter, in in some ways, it's done, but there's something else that Paul wants to accomplish. You see, he knows some of these folks in Rome. He's never been there, but he knows some of these people to whom he's writing. Some of these people he knows personally. He's met them before. Others he knows probably more by reputation. They're fellow servants. They're men and women who are with him in the mission. And he wants to send a special word of greeting to some of the folks there in Rome. And then, after those greetings, there are a few other last words that he wants to share with these dear believers in Christ. So this morning, we're going to read verses 1 through 16, thinking that we're going to spend 
I'm going to try and limit it to three sermons on these verses 1 through 16. Uh, The first two I'm calling Profiles in Service. Because what we have here are names, and many of these names are of people who are truly an example to us. Some of these names, we know almost nothing about them, but some of these names, we do know some things about them. The way they served the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's a reason the Holy Spirit inspired for their names to be recorded in our Bibles as a way of honoring them and setting them before us. So we're going to spend three weeks, I think, on verses 1 through 16. The third sermon will probably be on that last verse. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And we're going to talk about how to learn how to start kissing each other. No, not really. But we're going to talk about that verse and uh, how we apply it today. Let's read verses 1 through 16. Verses 1 through 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centri, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Jesus Christ, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Eponidas, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. And greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet us Syncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. If you were to ask people in the streets, in your neighborhood, what is the highest virtue? I think many would give a correct answer. Love. Uh, Even the most staunch atheist, the most progressive liberal activist speaks highly of love. It's in all of our songs. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. Um, A song that I enjoy from the 90s said, uh, I believe that love is the answer. I believe that love will find a way. Everyone supports love. Those who support LGBTQ causes say they do so because of love. And those who oppose those causes say they do so because of love. Those who support the practice of abortion say they do so for love. 
love for those women in hard circumstances. Those who oppose abortion say they do so because of love. Love for the unborn child. Everybody wants to be on the side of love. What could be better? What could be higher than love? But the reality is that love itself is not necessarily a good thing. Everything depends on the object of your love. If a person loves murder, that is a terrible kind of love. If a person just loves stirring up strife, stirring up conflict, that's a wicked love. If you are full of love, but your love is for the devil, that's a horrendous kind of love. Similarly, hatred is not necessarily a bad thing. It all depends on the object. I hope you hate sin. I hope you hate child abuse. I hope you hate deceit and corruption. So when it comes to love, when it comes to hatred, everything depends on the object. What do you love? What do you hate? And as we look at these verses, it is not hard to see the chief object of Paul's love. Oh yes, he loves these people to whom he is writing. There is, th- th- these verses are dripping with love as he, he loves these people that he's greeting. I can't be there to, to say hello to them. And, and in his day, there's no email, there's no phone calls. The, getting a letter to someone is hard. So here's an opportunity. Will you, will you express my love? Will you give my greeting? Will you, will you extend my love to these people? He loves these people, but even they are not his chief love. Over and over again, even as he greets these people, Paul can't stop talking about Jesus. Verse 2, welcome her in the Lord. Verse 3, fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Verse 7, they were in Christ before me. Verse 8, my beloved in the Lord. Verse 9, our fellow worker in Christ. Verse 10, approved in Christ. Verse 11, those in the Lord. Verse 12, workers in the Lord. Verse 13, chosen in the Lord. The chief name for you to see in this list of names is Jesus Christ the Lord. This is the object of Paul's love. This is the object of Paul's affection and what unites Paul to these people that he is greeting. What causes him to have this heart of love for them, this partnership with them, this sense of camaraderie with them is that they are together in loving Jesus. And because they're together in loving Jesus, they're together in serving Jesus. They are fellow workers They are chosen. They are approved in Christ. They are, most fundamentally, in Christ. Mount Hermon, before we could even talk about our love for one another, our love for fellow believers around the world, it all begins with, do you truly love Jesus? Does your heart 
burn with love for your Savior? Do you find your love for Christ to be so deep and so rich that he just comes into your regular conversation? Do you find Jesus on your lips often? Do you find that you can't even write a letter or have conversations where, where he's just coming in? He's, you just find yourself talking about him. And do we see that it is our union with Christ and our love for Christ and our common service to Christ that binds us together in love for one another? The same unity that Paul had with these Christians who were thousands of miles away from him is the same unity that we have with other Christians in this room and in other churches all around Rocky Mount and in every place all around the world where the name of Jesus is loved. We are part of a big family. We have brothers and sisters everywhere. And we are bound in love through Jesus. And we will care for our brothers and sisters. And we will count them as brothers and sisters. And we will treat them as brothers and sisters. If our love for Jesus is strong. Now in verses 1 through 2. Paul speaks of Phoebe. Phoebe. I should just mention before going there that when you look over this list of names, it is a mix of Jewish names and Gentile names. Phoebe is not one of the people who's in the church. So it's verses 3 through 16 that are the people that he's actually greeting who are there at the church in Rome. Two-thirds of the names are Gentile names. About one-third of the names are Jewish names. That fits with what we've been saying about this church. Started out as a small Jewish church. Uh, a Roman emperor declared that all the Jews were exiled from Rome. The Jews had to leave. Then it became a largely Gentile church. Finally, that emperor died. The Jews were allowed back in. But by then, the Jews were the minority in this church in Rome. So you have a majority Gentile church with some Jews a part of this church. And they're trying to learn how to love Jesus together. And they're trying to learn how to serve Jesus together. And it is interesting. Paul doesn't just greet a bunch of Jewish people in the church in Rome. And he doesn't greet just a bunch of the Gentile people in the church in Rome. He greets all. He greets two-thirds Gentile, one-third Jewish. Which we think is probably what the makeup of the church was like. But then there's Phoebe. And he is commending Phoebe to the Christians in Rome. I commend to you our sister Phoebe. Well, what did it mean that he was commending this lady to them? Uh, well, put simply, it means Phoebe's coming to Rome. Phoebe is, is on her way, and Paul wants this dear sister in Christ to be well received when she gets there. He is adding his commendation to her so when the Christians in Rome receive her, they will know, hey, this is a fellow sister in Christ. This is a fellow servant. This is someone we need to make sure we welcome her, we love her, we care for her. Remember, in the ancient world, inns were not a place for reputable people to stay when traveling. There were no 
holiday inns. They were only mostly disreputable inns. And so when people traveled, they had to depend upon the hospitality of others. They were often trying to find through their networks of friends and family, who can receive me? Where can I stay? Who has a bed for me? Phoebe's coming to Rome. It's possible she's going to need a place to stay. It's possible she's going to need some hospitality. She's to be welcomed as a sister. She's to be welcomed practically with food and lodging and even friendship. Paul says to the Roman Christians, verse 2, help her in whatever she may need from you. We could preach a whole sermon on that verse just about the call there for Christian hospitality. I think this also indicates that Phoebe is the person delivering this letter to the church in Rome. Remember, Paul just told us in chapter 15, he really wants to go to Rome himself, but he's got another mission to accomplish first. He's got to go a thousand miles in the other direction. Paul's headed to Jerusalem, but Phoebe's headed to Rome. So it seems likely that Paul's going to give her this letter. And she's going to be the one who delivers it. Uh, This is further confirmed by the fact that Paul is writing this letter from the city of Corinth. And Centri, the church where Phoebe is at, is a suburb of Corinth. Right there on the water. So it makes sense that he's going to give this letter to her, that she's going to bring it to the church in Rome. By the way, that immediately tells us something about Paul's trust in this lady, Phoebe. Because this letter is Paul's magnum opus. It is his greatest work. Romans is the longest of Paul's letters. It teaches the gospel more thoroughly than any other writing that we have. It teaches the way of salvation. It teaches the nature of the Christian life. I have argued and continue to argue that the book of Romans is in some ways the apex of the Bible. And they did not have copy machines. And they did not have printing presses. And we're going to see later in this chapter that it was a man named Tertius who did the writing for Paul as Paul spoke to him this letter. Tertius served as something of a secretary. He he dictated the letters for Paul. So so Paul speaks aloud what he wants to say. Tertius writes it down. It's one manuscript. And it is now being given to Phoebe to be delivered safely to the church in Rome. And from there, the central place of the empire, others would have to hand copy it. Hand copy the letter so that it could be uh, given to to other churches who could read it and benefit from it. Even in Rome, we see in these verses, the church in Rome was split into house churches. In those days, under the threat of persecution, Christians didn't have access to these kinds of spaces. The idea of having a church building like this would have been an impossibility. Those early Christians in Rome. So they're, they're having to split up into these, these house churches. Uh, verse 5, Paul mentions the church in Prisca and Aquila's house. Verse 15, Paul mentions Philologus. By the way, Philologus. What a name. We need to bring that name back. So somebody name your child Philologus. Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. 
This well may be a reference to another house church in Rome. Uh, In fact, some argue there are as many as five distinct house churches reflected in the groupings of these, these greetings. So even when Paul's letter gets to Rome by Phoebe, it's going to have to be hand-copied and then passed just to the other different churches in the city in Rome and then all the more for it to go elsewhere. So Phoebe has a very important role as the carrier of this letter. And Paul clearly trusts her. Paul also speaks about Phoebe's character. Uh, He mentions two pertinent facts. First, he tells us that Phoebe is a servant of the church at Centri. And second, that she has been a patron of many and of Paul himself. So let's look at each one of those those statements. Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centri. That is a statement that has been a cause for controversy. That might surprise you. But that verse has been a cause for controversy. And that's because the word servant that Paul uses here is the word diakonon. So what do you hear? You hear the word deacon? That's where we get our word deacon. And so this verse has become a key proof text for those churches who argue that the office of deacon ought to be open to women as well as to men. They point to this verse and they say, see, Phoebe was probably a deacon in her church. And if Phoebe was a deacon in her church, then we ought to be allowing female deacons. And, and I have many folks, by the way, who I respect, who hold that view. Okay? Uh, people who love the Bible, who take it seriously, and that's the view that they hold. They point out that this construction, diakonos, of the church at Centri, it's used elsewhere in Scripture to refer to people who hold an office, right? Diakonon of the church at Centri. So if that's the case, why do we at Mount Hermon restrict the office of deacon to men? So five reasons very quickly. First, the word diakonos in its different forms, is used 29 times in the New Testament. Of those 29 times, 24 times it's used to refer to just a general servant. 24 of the 29 times, it does not have anything to do with the office of deacon. It's just the normal word for servant. Four times it is used to refer to the office of deacon. And then the other time is right here. And we have to decide. Is this go with the group of 24? That's just the general word servant. She serves in her church. Or is this go with the four uses where it refers to the office of deacon? Second, the form of diakonos used here. It's the accusative singular for language scholars. It's only used one other place in the New Testament. And it was just... Right before Paul wrote this, it was in Romans 15, verse 8. So in Romans 15, verse 8, Paul uses the exact same word. It's the only time it's used exactly this way as it's used in 16. And it's Romans 15, 8. I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. So in this verse, it's clear. It's not referring to an office of deacon. It's talking about Christ as a servant. Third, 
The Bible seems to establish a pattern where women flourish and thrive under male leadership. This is the pattern established for marriage in the Christian home, and it extends to the local church as well. So that Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. And he makes that statement just before he gives the qualifications for both the offices of elders, pastors, and deacons. And he gives those qualifications in the masculine gender with men clearly in mind. Those who take the Bible's teaching about male headship seriously while affirming women deacons do so by arguing that the office of deacon doesn't have to be an office with authority over men. That is, there are Christians who say we affirm God's pattern for male-female relationships. We affirm males and females are equal in dignity, each in their own way representing the glory of the God who created us. And we believe that God created men and women to have differing roles. Equal in dignity, different in roles, and that women are not to have authority over men in the church. But they say, we do believe women can be deacons if what we do is give them a role of deacon where there's no authority over men. And so, for example, in the church where John Piper pastored, you guys hear me quote Piper all the time, they have women deacons. But their deacons do not meet together as a board like ours do. We have deacon meetings and we get our deacons together and we flesh out decisions together. That's not how they deacon. Instead, in their church, deacon basically means the same thing as a ministry leader. So the, the head of the music ministry is a deacon and the head of this ministry is a deacon and the head of that ministry is a deacon and the head of the women's ministry is a deacon. And she's a woman. Because she doesn't, she, in that ministry, she's not going to have authority over men. But that leads to a, a fourth point. The pattern of deaconing in the Bible seems to be that of an office that does have authority over men and women and has deacons working together, not as ministry leaders, but as a plurality. The, the fact is, God has given the oversight of the local church to pastors, to elders. But then we see in Acts 6 that in order that the pastors may devote themselves more fully to the word of God in prayer, God instituted the office of deacon. And the role of deacons is to come alongside the pastors, the elders, to help relieve them of some of their responsibilities so that they might more fully focus on the priorities of prayer in the preaching of the word. So as I understand the office of deacon, deacon responsibilities are pastoral responsibilities. Deacon responsibilities are elder responsibilities that have been delegated to the deacons, which is why the character qualifications to be a deacon are the same as the character qualifications to be a pastor. That means the responsibilities of deacons are very important and they affect the entire church both men and women. 
And just as pastors are to serve in a plurality, as pastors are are always mentioned as sharing leadership together, that's also the pattern we see for deacons. We never see the, the deacon over this or the deacon over that. What we see is deacons working together so that when the pastors of the church in Jerusalem saw that they could no longer be faithful in prayer and the word, Because they were having to spend so much time helping with the daily distribution of food, they appointed deacons. They appointed seven men, and they were all men who were now responsible to take over that daily distribution that apparently included many hundreds or even thousands of people in the church. In other words, it's not that the seven deacons were themselves going house to house distributing the food. It meant probably they were administering They were overseeing, they were organizing, they were recruiting, they were working together as a plurality to help make sure this ministry goes well. The care of the members of the church was a pastoral responsibility, but the care of the members had become such a big responsibility that the pastors needed help. And so deacons were brought on board to assist, to take some of those responsibilities Because these deacons were overseeing many others in the church who were taking part in the ministry, because these were pastor obligations that were now delegated to them, it made sense with the pattern of male headship that the deacons would be men. And then fifth, finally, let's be clear. This position that we have as a church does not mean, does not mean that we in any way think women are less capable of handling these responsibilities. We do not believe for a moment that there is anything inherent in females that make them somehow less able to do these things than males. In fact, women throughout history have often been faithful managers and administrators of the home, which would in many ways make you think they would have been way more qualified to oversee the distribution of food in Acts 6. So the issue is not ability. That's not the issue. The issue is authority and God teaching us through his patterns of authority that this is his world, not our world. And he is more greatly glorified in our lives when we follow his patterns of authority. When men practice true faithful leadership in a mission and then women are able to come alongside with all of their unique gifts as true faithful helpers, both groups thrive. The joy and well-being of women is helped, not hindered, by male headship when it's done rightly. So I think when you do a fair assessment of 1 Timothy 3, Acts 6, the use of the word diakonos throughout the New Testament, I think the weight is pretty solidly on the side that we should translate this word as servant the way the ESV does, and not as the word with the word deacon. I don't believe Phoebe was a deacon in her church, but she was clearly a faithful servant of her church. Uh, Ladies in our church, please don't think that somehow, because the office of deacon is closed to you, that in some way means that you cannot use your gifts and abilities in the service of Christ and in this church. And by the way, I don't think many of you are thinking that. I don't don't think many of you are going home at night and punching the wall because you're so upset that you don't have opportunities to serve here. There are opportunities everywhere. And I am thankful for 
116 years. Think, think about all the ladies throughout the long history of this church who have served in substantial ways and made a lasting impact. How, how many of us have been helped, encouraged, and positively influenced through the ladies of this church? Uh, I think about those who were dear women when I first came here who are no longer with us. Uh, some of the dear ladies of our church that I had the privilege of, of preaching their funerals. And just thinking about, you know, sitting with their family, sitting with some of you and thinking about the stories of how their years in teaching Sunday school, their years in, in working with the ladies, their years in, in caring for people in their own times of grief and the impact, the lasting impact that those ladies had. We, we could give testimonies in here about the impact of women who faithfully served this church. And there are many in the room right now. We, we have Phoebes in this church. And so I guess the application is, may they abound. <laughs> may, may we have many Phoebes in this church. In fact, I think it's worth pointing out at least 10 of the names that Paul greets in the church in Rome are females. Some of them were not sure, is it a man, is it a woman, okay? But just because of the spelling, y'all, some of these names, all we have is the name. And, you know, some names are not clear, right? Um, so, so we don't know, for, but about 10 of them, we're sure. These, these are female names. These are women who were active in serving the Lord Jesus, serving the church. And Paul knows about them. Whether he's met them or not, he's heard of them by reputation. They are leaving a mark, a legacy of service. And he's saying to the church in Rome, here's another one. Phoebe's coming. A faithful servant. And then, and then what about that second statement about Phoebe? She has been a patron of many others as well as Paul himself. Uh, I think he's speaking here about the generosity of Phoebe. It's typically the idea of this, this word patron, and it seems to be the Greek word that they're translating here. It seems to be a word that's, that's talking about helping, coming alongside and helping, but particularly helping through financial gifts. It's possible that Phoebe was a lady in a strong financial position where she was able to help a lot of the believers around her. In that way, she may have been very similar to a Lydia. Remember Lydia, uh, the seller of purple, right, uh, who came to Christ and was able to, uh, to serve the Lord. Uh, Christians often found themselves in poverty in the first century. Christians often found themselves cut off from their livelihoods, cut off from their families. And by the way, that's also true in the 21st century. Not so much here, but in other places around the world, there are people who lose their livelihoods and their connections with their family members because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it appears that God had providentially placed Phoebe in a situation where she was a financial helper to, to, the, to the needs of her brothers and sisters around her. And more than that, she appears to have been a ministry partner for Paul. She, Paul says he, she had also been a patron of him. And so she was someone who was using what God had entrusted to her for the sake of the ministry, the sake of the mission, the spread of the gospel around the world. And so in Phoebe, we have an example of a woman who loved the Lord Jesus. Her life had been transformed by the gospel. And because of the salvation she had found in Christ, 
she now found delight in serving and helping the cause of Christ and his people. So Mount Hermon, if we want to be like Phoebe, we have to get to the heart of the matter. And so we end where we began. What is your chief love? What is it that causes your heart to burn within you? As you go through your day, each day, what is it that's motivating your decisions? What is motivating your actions? Is it love for Christ above all? I would encourage us to take a fresh account of our sins. To take a fresh account of what we deserve. And then take a fresh account of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And as we do that, we should see how he lived for us, how he died for us, how his sins have, how his sins, how his blood has taken away our sins, right? Our contribution is the sin. His contribution was his own blood, his own life. And even now he cares for us as, he cares for us so gently. He cares for us as, as with a tender reed, right? We're, we're just on the... If he, if he touches us even a little bit more strong, we're just going to break. No, he's so gentle with us. He's interceding for us in heaven. He's working everything in this world for our good. See Christ as the lover of your soul. See Christ as the epitome of glory. Think about the day, dear Christian, when you will see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ with glorified physical eyes, and it will be the most amazing thing you've ever seen. Let your love for Jesus swell. Let your love for Jesus grow. Let your love for other things that are trivial, that don't matter, begin to fade as you, as you narrow in so that everything you love, you love for Jesus' sake. And may that make us a more serving and a more generous people. Amen? Amen.